their salvation is based totally in faith, not by works, not by religion, not by rule, but their salvation is totally by faith. He wants to remind them of that because there are those who are coming to them now trying to bring in other elements, trying to bring in these elements of Jewish religiosity, trying to bring in other things that uh, they were not required to do, not required to keep, but trying to bring them back under the law, if you will. And so Paul is combating that all throughout this writing to the church at Galatia. And so in verse 15, he's going to begin to uh, build a case, if you will. And we're going to talk some about wills this morning. Does that excite you? Everybody want to talk about your will. I should have had everybody bring their will, if you have a will. Bring your will with you. Uh, we're going to talk about codicils. You know what a codicil is? An addendum or a codicil to a will. I mean, this is really interesting stuff. This is just going to fire you up right here. I mean, all this legal talk. Paul, <coughs> remember a couple of weeks ago, I had two gentlemen standing up here. And we used the illustration, or I was using them for illustrative purpose, to get us to understand that when Paul was writing, he was writing in terms of the culture of the people whom he was trying to speak to. And so he had two different cultures coming to blows with each other, if you will, or coming to a head with each other between the Jewish culture and this Gentile uh, Galatian culture, and the two were different in that they had two different points of view because they were coming from two different perspectives. They were coming from two different worlds, if you will. And so we had one world that was, we had two men, and they represented these two different worlds. Well, as he goes on to instruct these Galatians about who they are in Christ and about how their faith is only through the Son of God and not through any means of keeping the law or the Mosaic law and all those types of things. He speaks to them in terms that they can understand. And I, I, want, us to, I want us to realize that. That when we talk to people in terms of the gospel, we have to remember... You have to be able to relate to people in terms that they can understand. You have to consider the culture to which you speak. Okay? Now, that's not always easy for me because I'm coming from a, I come from a very uh, <clears throat> conservative, more old, old line culture. My hair is white for a purpose. <laughs> okay? And so my perspective many times is different than younger people. And I have sometimes a harder time relating to them. But it is my duty to learn how to communicate with people of different cultures, different age groups, and so forth, so that I can accurately speak to them about the Word of God. And so Paul was very good at doing this, and he is going to... Uh, use some of his former training in that Paul was an attorney of sorts. 
He was not only schooled in the Mosaic law, but he was schooled in all kinds of Jewish law. Paul was a great orator. He was a great uh, defender of the faith, and he could argue with you on many grounds. And today he's going to use some legal uh, words here, and he's going to talk about some things in the form of a covenant. And you and I would talk about a covenant more or less in our language today like a will, okay? So it's, it's closer to a will, and that's more familiar language maybe to us. All right, let's go to verse 15. Brethren, I speak to you in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. <clears throat> Yet, when it, was, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So let's back up to verse 13 and 14 and then come back to 15. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Again, Paul is teaching his audience that their salvation is by faith. He is backed all the way up to the original man of faith. And that is Abram or Abraham as we know him usually in Scripture. He backs all the way up to Abraham and he says that he is the first to recognize that salvation is by faith. God chose Abraham. He chose him when he was Abram, when he lived in the Ur of the Chaldees with the Chaldean people. God chose him. Why God chose him? We can ask that question when we get to heaven. I don't know. I can't answer that question. He chose him. The only thing that I can say is that God is sovereign and He is sovereign in His choice and He chose Abram. He chose him. But Abram came to faith just like everyone else who has come after Abram and that they have accepted their, or have been made right in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He believed in, a, in one who was to come. He believed in Christ who was to come. And it was credited to him as righteousness. So everyone that has ever experienced salvation faith, my friend, whether they were an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer or a today believer, we have all experienced salvation the same way. And that we had to recognize that we were in need of a Savior and that God would make a way for us and we accept that by faith that God will provide for salvation for us. And we know today that that person is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Abraham accepted that by faith. And so he is reminding them of all of that. And then he wants to explain the covenant between God and Abraham in terms that these Gentile believers could understand. So that's where we are in verse 15. <clears throat> He wants to relate it in human terms, in human terms that they could understand. Verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came from... 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant 
or a will, okay, previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? Well, let's stop right there at verse 18. <clears throat> Let me try to explain this, <clears throat> his case. He is saying that there was one seed. There is one seed. Abraham had one seed. Do you know who the seed of Abraham was? Who, who is the seed of Abraham? Abraham had one seed. He had two sons, but he had one seed. You remember that son? Isaac. Isaac. Isaac is the seed. Okay? But why is that? Even though Abraham had at least two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, right? We, we've got somebody that's got an Isaac in the room, right? Okay. He had at least two sons. He may have had more than that. There's two sons noted in Scripture. But there was only one seed, or there was only one child who inherited the promises, or inherited from Abraham all of what Abraham had. And that was Isaac. Because Isaac was the child, remember, that was born of the union between he, but that is Abraham or Abram, and Sarah, okay? She had the only one true child. He had another child. His name was Ishmael. He was born by a slave woman named Hagar. But that child never inherited the promise of Abraham. He never inherited from Abraham, okay? Because he was not the righteous seed. He was not the child of promise. So hold your place there in, in Galatians chapter 3 and go all the way back to the book of Genesis because I want you to see this from scripture where this is coming from. All the way back to Genesis and uh, chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Isaac was the child that he took and was going to sacrifice, remember? He was commanded by the Lord to take his son Isaac and to sacrifice. And as part of all of that, when he took Isaac up to the place of sacrifice, when they got there and he laid Isaac on the stone and was going to slay Isaac as a sacrifice before the Lord, the Lord halted him and said to stop. And what was he saying all the way up to the place of sacrifice? What was Abraham saying to Isaac? What was he saying? I, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Daddy, where is the sacrifice? Where's the ram? Where's the lamb? Where's the ram that we're going to sacrifice? He would say, son, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. 
If you read all of that, and I'm not going to go into all that this morning and, and, and read all that to you, but you begin reading at about chapters 21, 22, 23, and so forth, you'll find that it is spoken of Isaac as being the seed of Abraham. And this is where uh, uh, Paul is going to in his argument. He wants them to understand that there was only one righteous seed that came through Abraham, and that is Isaac. He was the son of promise. He was the son that was promised uh, to him and to Sarah both. And Sarah scoffed at the promise when she received it from the Lord. And that's also in those, those chapters there in the book of Genesis. But he wants them to remember this because this is so important. And you say, well, why, why is this so important? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and uh, turn there just real quickly. I don't want to give you a major history lesson here. <clears throat> Sometimes we skip over who begat who, who, the genealogy of anybody in the Bible, because we think that that's boring. But to them, it was extremely important. Okay? Abraham to Abraham in, in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, to Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob uh, uh, Judah and his brothers. One seed. Only one. Ishmael is not mentioned in the lineage. And this is going to be the lineage of Jesus Christ. Ishmael is never mentioned. It is only mentioned in Scripture that there was one seed. And that was Isaac. Abraham begat Isaac. And then when you follow all of the genealogy, all the way through, then you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That he came from this one righteous seed. Now that's extremely important. And this is part of Paul's basis of all of his argument here. Is that you've got to understand that there was only one child of promise. And that one child of promise, through that one child of promise, or through that one righteous seed, the whole world would be reckoned back to God. Because it is through Abraham and his one righteous seed, Isaac, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came about through Mary, his mother, who is in the direct lineage all the way back to Abraham. Genealogy could be traced without, without, a, without a problem all the way back to Abraham. Through that one righteous seed, everything has been made right. And this is what Paul wants them to understand. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. He wants them to understand that they are all saved by this one righteous seed. And there is no other. There is no other seed. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which man may be saved. There is no other way to come to have a relationship with God except through this one righteous seed. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who has experienced salvation whether they were on the Old Testament side all the way back to Abraham or whether they are today, they have come to relationship with our Heavenly Father through one righteous seed, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Even though they did not understand, Abraham did not know his name. Abraham did not know he would be called Yeshua. Abraham did not know he would be called, be called Jesus the Christ, yet he accepted by faith that God would provide, just like he told his son Isaac, 
that he would provide a sacrifice. He says, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide a sacrifice. You find that pattern all throughout the scripture. That the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And it comes through one, Jesus Christ. So he wants them to understand that everyone's salvation, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are Old Testament believer or New Testament believer, is through one person, and that is this one seed, and that is this seed, Jesus Christ. Verse 17. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham or has promised it to Abraham by means of a promise. He's given Abraham a promise. He told Abraham, this is what I shall do. Why the law then? (laughs) It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So he wants them to understand the law did not come first. The law did not come first. What came first? The promise. The promise that had to be accepted by faith. The promise was first. The covenant if you will, was first. The law came after. Paul says it came 430 years after the covenant was made with Abraham. The promise came first. Faith has always come before the law. Faith and the promise of faith, that is accepting of the promise by faith, came before the law. So he wants to establish in their mind what is of utmost importance. Is it the law or is it faith? It's got to be faith because the promise came before the law. The covenant was made. God said, I will make you a father of many nations that there would be proceeding from you, Abraham. There's going to be a seed that will come. There will be a righteous one who will come. That will be the sacrifice for the sins of all people for all time. He was going to make the world right through Abraham. So he wants to establish this in their mind so that they understand. Now, here's where we get into wills and codicils. Wills and codicils. I deal with this from time to time as an insurance agent. Everyone... If you are of age, you need a will, okay? You need a will because a will is going to establish where uh, the things that you own, your estate, are going to go, who's going to get what, how they're going to get it. Also very important for you who are parents, it's extremely important that you have a will, not just for the disposition of your estate, but so that your minor children are provided for and so that they also will have guard, someone will have guardianship over your children. Very important. Wills are extremely important. They've been around forever. In their language in Old Testament times, they called them covenants. Now, I'm not saying that a modern-day man-made will is on the same equivalency as a 
covenant with God. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to do here is use language like Paul used so that we understand from a, our perspective what this relationship is based on and how it functions. So God made a promise <coughs> to Abraham, which is called a covenant. Which covenant says, if you will, I will. It's a contract of sorts. In today's language, <coughs> we call these things, a lot of times we call them, we're a will. Which says, <coughs> I own this, I have this, this is mine. Uh, these are my children. This is what I wish to, to, for them to have. This is what I wish for my spouse to have, for anybody to have. And I also want to establish guardianship for my children. Who's going to take care of my kids when I'm gone? All that kind of stuff is encompassed inside of a will. Now, <clears throat> you make out your will, and you delineate who you are. One of the first things it's going to say in any and everybody's will is I, insert your name here <laughs> in this blank, being of... Being of sound mind, okay, something of that effect, that you have the capacity to make a will. Because if you are not of a sound mind, guess what? You can't make one. <laughs> you can't enter into a contract. If you don't have a sound mind, you cannot execute a will. All right? So you establish who you are and what your state of mind is and that you have the capacity to have a will. You also state in there that you are of legal age or whatever state it is that you're making the will in. So all these things have to be there. You establish all these things within the will. And then you begin to say <coughs> about your estate, who's going to get what, how it's going to proceed, what you're going to do with it. And there's a variety of things that, you're going, that you do there. And then you flow down to your, if you have minor children again, that you want to establish guardianship for your children because you want the, your children to be guarded by or entrusted into the care of someone whom you wish for them. Because if mom and dad both die in an automobile accident, and you have minor kids, guess, where the, guess who the minor kids are a ward of? The state. And they're going to decide. Now, more than likely, they're going to give them somebody that's in direct uh, family relation to you, but that's going to cost a lot of money, and you're going to have to go through a lot of hurdles that are needless to do. You could have accomplished this with a will. So Paul says <coughs> here... Let's go back to what he's saying. That there was a codicil made to this will or an addendum. Which came after the will was made. Which all that means is, is that later on when things changed, I decided that I was going to make an addendum or a codicil. I was going to change my will. There was some language in here that I needed to change somewhere down the line because certain events had happened. Other children had been born. Uh, my first wife died, 
and now I've got stepchildren, all those types of things, so I make a codicil or an addendum to the will in order to make my will do what it is I want my will to do. He says that this is the law. It is a codicil or an addendum to the original promise that was made between himself and Abraham. Now, when I make a codicil or an addendum to my will, it does not negate my will. My will is still the testament of what I want done in the execution of it or how I want things distributed. I just added some other language in there to take care of a certain situation that had arisen in my lifetime. Okay? It does not negate the will. It doesn't do away with it. It just adds to it. And Paul is using this very language to get them to understand this is what the law did. 430 years elapsed from the time of the promise of Abraham. What happened during that time? Over 430 years. A lot more people. <laughs> there was a whole lot more people came about during this time, okay? There was a lot of things that happened during that time. Many, many things happened over a period of 400 and something years. So God, in his infinite wisdom, made a change, a, co a codicil or an amend amendment to the promise that he had made with Abraham that does not negate the original promise whatsoever. It just takes care of a certain situation for a certain period of time. And he said this is exactly what the law does. The law was added as a means of being able to teach people how it is that they should live. Because the guarantee you, Jonathan Adams can tell you this, being a police officer, the more and more and more people that you have, typically the more and more rules that you need to keep all of those people under control. Or any school teacher in here could tell you that and shake your head up and down. Okay? And so you need those rules, and this is what God was doing with the Mosaic Law. He was trying to teach His people that were accepting Him or are coming into relationship with Him, not by means of keeping the law, but still by means of faith, but teaching them how it is that they ought to live in a society and in a world that was increasingly lawless okay it was a chaotic time there were not many laws it was a lot of tribal law people were very uh, transient there was no real set rules and regulations so God decided that it is best for my people who come into relationship with me to have a set of rules that helps them to live now here's the problem <clears throat> what we do as human beings, what we did as humans, and this is very typical of us, <clears throat> we try to supersede the promise with the codicil. We try to make this primary or number one and the promise number two. Remember, the promise is faith in Christ. 
Always, first, foremost, and primarily. But we all, what we have a tendency to do as humans is we kind of like the rules. We like the rules. We like the codicil. We like this law which says that if I do these things, if I keep these things, if I act like this, then that makes me in right relationship with my heavenly Father. And God says, no. And Paul says, no. He says, the promise is still primary. The promise is still primary. God did not change anything by making this addendum or this codicil to this promise. The promise is still number one. Faith in Christ is still number one. The rules or the law is number two, three, four, however you want to put it down through here. It is not primary. What we tend to do, though, as human beings is, is that we elevate the law, we elevate the change to the will, instead of remembering what the promise, what the original promise was. The original promise was that there is one righteous seed from Abraham that God entered into promise with Abraham and told Abraham, I will reconcile the world back to myself through this one righteous seed. There is no other. There is no other seed. And this is the way to have relationship with me. It was not by the law. The problem that the Galatians were having <coughs> and the Jews that were coming to the Galatians at this point was, <coughs> again, they were trying to elevate the law above the promise and putting the rules ahead of the promise that is, that, that is relationship with our Heavenly Father through faith in Christ and Christ alone. They tried to elevate that and make that greater. And this is exactly what we tend to do as human beings. So, Paul goes all through this legal language to try to help them to understand this. Why the law then? <clears throat> it was added because of transgressions. Verse 19. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Who was the mediator? That would have been Moses. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Until the seed had come. Until Christ had come. The Mosaic law was there. <clears throat> it was to be adhered to. It was to be followed. It was God's law. Not a problem with that. Verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one party only. Whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? This is the big question. This is the question. This is the question that we still wrestle with today. Go back and look at this question. In the law then, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This is the wrestling ground for you and I as Christians. For if a law had been given through, or, yes, wait a minute, may it never be. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, may it never be. For if a law had been given 
which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. If the law could have done what the promise did, then our righteousness would be based on adherence to the Mosaic law. In other words, sinless perfection. Sinless perfection. Now, this is where a lot of times Christians depart and you begin to have some conflict of belief here about falling from grace. About falling from grace. Can a person who claims to be a child of God sin and still be in right relationship with God? Still have the right relationship. This is, this is something you really need to get your mind around because this is a lot of, this is a huge argument that has gone on now for thousands of years in the Christian world. Can a person lose their salvation? Paul would say, if salvation is based purely on the law and keeping the law and keeping the rules then yes, you could lose your salvation. In other words, if the promise of God were not here, and if it did not supersede everything that comes after it, then it would be possible for a person to lose their salvation. But because our relationship with God is based on a promise or a covenant made between God and man, not man and God, but God and man, it becomes impossible for a person to lose their salvation. Because your salvation is based on acceptance of faith in Christ. It is based on the promise. It is not based on the law, which was a codicil, an amendment, which was secondary it is based on the primary, number one thing here, is based on the promise or the covenant that was made between God and man. Do you get it? <laughs> this, is, this is deep stuff now. This is stuff that you got to kind of dig on here and think about. See, a lot of times what we do <clears throat> in teaching... And in receiving teaching is that we just take in the surface of what's being said, if we kind of like it, if it kind <clears> of <throat> perks our interest or whatever. But we don't dig and we don't think. Let me tell you, the Bible is a book of thinking. You've you got to think. You need to get the whole picture in your mind as much as you can. Everything has to reconcile itself with Scripture. This is exactly what Paul is doing. He is not, he is not appealing to these people based on emotionalism or what they think or what appeals to them. He is appealing to them based on logical reasoning, looking at the totality of Scripture and everything that has gone on from the very beginning in the book of Genesis all the way through to his present time. 
So you have to really think your way through these things and look at these things. But my friend, this is something that is, is extremely important. <clears throat> You've got to nail down the fact <clears throat> excuse me, that you cannot, you cannot lose your salvation. And what keeps you from being able to lose your salvation is not you or me or how I perform or how good I am, and how many rules I keep, and all of that. It is based on this. It's based on a promise that God made with Abraham. Not what Abraham made with God, but what God made with Abraham, where he told him that through this one righteous seed, salvation would come to the whole world. And that's the only way. Salvation has always been by faith in Christ and Christ alone, and is based on a promise it is based on a covenant relationship between man and God that was made by God with man. It's not based on what we do. It's never been based on what we do. It was not based on how good Abram was. As I said in the beginning, why did God pick Abram? Why did he do that? Why did God choose to make a promise with a man who was of a, a very worldly culture. He was of the Chaldean people. He, God made him a Jew. Abraham didn't make himself a Jew. God made him a Jew. God brought Abram into right relationship with himself. God did that, not Abram. Abram did not earn it. He did not deserve it. He was not good enough. He was not better than all the rest of the people living in the land. It's just that God chose him. God chose him. And God chose to make a promise with him. And you and I are the benefactor today of that promise. And it makes it impossible for us to lose our salvation. Verse 22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, <clears throat> that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Somebody else have a different interpretation on that verse uh, 22 or reads differently than what I just read? But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin okay. so that what was promised be given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, this goes back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay. We were shut up in sin, or we were all apart. We we were all sinners, so that by the so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the to the faith which was later to be revealed. The law kept custody. I mentioned that one thing that a will does. It talks about the guardianship or the custody of your children in the absence of yourself. Who's going to have custody? Who's going to have guardianship of those children? The law was a guardian. It was a guardian. It was a custodial deal. This codicil gave custody to, of mankind to the Mosaic law in that it kept us. It kept man. It taught men how to live. It also enlightened man that in and of himself he was, he was no good. 
that he could never measure up to the things of God in and of himself or on his own. It showed man that also, but it was also a keeper or a guardian. Okay? This is what some of this other language that he's using. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It taught us, it taught us, it guarded us, and it also taught us that we were in need of a Savior. That we could not meet up to God's standard. We could not do it on our own. Now this word tutor that is used there is a word that we're, we are familiar with. <clears throat> Some of you in school uh, are either have been tutored or you are a tutor, right? Uh, someone has taught you. You've got a, some individual relationship with somebody that is teaching you on a certain subject. They are tutoring you. Now, when I went to school, I needed a lot of tutoring. Dave Miller knew me back then. I needed a lot of tutoring. And uh, the tutoring that I received was usually by the hand of discipline, okay? And I needed that tutoring. I needed somebody who, who could teach me something that I could not understand on my own. And he is saying that that is what the law does. It was a tutor. And this is a Greek term, and this is something that they used. Now, does anybody have a translation that maybe uses a word slave there? Sometimes that's used in, in Old King James. What these tutors did, they were more than just somebody who came over to your house or you went to study hall and they taught you on this subject. When somebody tutored you in the Greek culture, that meant that they, you were entrusted to them. They took care of you. They took care of you, and you spent a lot of time with them. It's like, you know, being with your algebra teacher 24 hours a day. I couldn't do it, but that's kind of the way that it was with them, Okay. So these people, were it was entrusted. They had a trust relationship. Sorry about that. They had a trust relationship. <laughs> Don't look, Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> they had a trust relationship with the people that they were tutoring. It was more like a guardianship, okay, guardianship, and that they were entrusted to these tutors, and these tutors not only taught them, but they literally took care of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic Law. That's right. So the, the law was this tutor that we were entrusted into the care of. Okay? But again, it never superseded the promise. It was secondary. It came after the promise. It's not primary. But the problem that these people were having the problem that the Jews that were having that was coming back to the church at Galatia, they were trying to elevate the law once again to make it primary over the promise of God. They were elevating works over relationship. And this is the battleground for you and I as children of God. We, we battle right here. We are always inclined to elevate works over relationship. 
We just have a natural inclination. We want to do that. We like to do that. It appeals to us. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The relationship has changed now, Paul says. Things have all changed. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Every one of you, Jew and Greek, all of you are the same. You're all sons of God through the same, all the same way. Through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's only by the promise. This is why you cannot lose your salvation. This is why you cannot lose your salvation. Okay? You cannot fall from grace. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you have accepted Christ by faith, that He is the Savior, and you have been baptized or immersed into Jesus Christ, you are now clothed with Jesus Christ. When the Father looks at you, what does He see? Or who does He see? He sees the Son. Because the relationship has changed. You're no longer under this tutelage. You're no longer under this guardianship. You're no longer under this tutor. You have been immersed in Jesus Christ. When the Father looks at you, He sees, if you have accepted the Son, then He sees the Son. He sees His child. He doesn't see someone else. Now, He recognizes you as an individual, but He sees His Son. You're baptized or immersed into Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. There is no difference. No difference in the eyes of God. Whether you are a Jew or a Greek. That was their culture. That's their world that they're living in. It doesn't matter whether you're a Baptist or whether you were an atheist. Okay? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether you were reared in church or whether you had never set foot inside of church. Doesn't matter if you came to faith in Jesus Christ by the promise of God and accepted that Christ is your personal Savior. When the Father looks at you, all he sees is his Son. That's it. He doesn't see you as a woman. When he was using this type of language, male or female, there was a caste system. Females were always sub subjected to, male, to males. Okay, second class citizenry, all of that. Paul is dispelling all that. He says there is no difference. There is no difference. God sees you all the same. Because all he sees is, is that you have accepted Christ by faith, that you are relying on the covenant relationship that he made with Abraham, that you are relying on the promise and the promise alone. And now you have been made in right relationship with Him. And when He sees you, all He sees is His Son. Because you are baptized into Christ, you are immersed into Christ. So that when He sees you, all He sees is His Son. All He sees is Jesus. All over you. All over you. And that means that even when, <clears throat> even when you are living, even when you sin... I'm not going to say that you live in sin. That's wrong connotation. But even when you sin, if you are relying on the promise, God says you're still my child. 
you're still my child. Because I made the covenant, not you. I'm glad he made the covenant. See, I'm glad he made the promise. I'm glad. Because if I'd have made it, that means I could break it. But he cannot. He cannot. He will not break his promise. He cannot break his promise. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to what? The promise. Whether you're Jew or Greek, doesn't matter. Whether you're circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. Man or woman, doesn't matter. Where you come from in society, doesn't matter. Your socioeconomic group, doesn't matter. Who you are, the color of your skin, where you were raised, whatever, doesn't matter. If you've accepted the promise, you're an heir. And God says, you're mine. And no man, no man can ever pluck you from the Father's hand. You're mine. You're my child. Doesn't matter what you've done in life. Doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made or how many you're going to make. Once you are a child of God, you are God's child. If you rely on the promise and the promise alone. It's not a matter of performance. It's not a matter of how good you are, how religious you are. It's all about the relationship. And the only way to have the relationship is through the seed. And the seed is Jesus. He's the only one. The only one. He's the only way. He's the only way.